All right, good morning, everyone. I am Daryl Mindeman, and I am coming to you today as the state chair for the North Dakota Young Republicans. So this is a, uh, a political movement. It's also a Christian movement. And I have been aware of Curtis and his work on the Agenda documentary since uh, right around 2010. And I first uh, heard about Agenda when the documentary won the, at the time, largest independent Christian film festival award for best in festival. This was at the San Antonio Independent Christian Film Festival. And I saw the video in 2010, and Curtis walked up on stage with his family. And the key thing that I took away from that was who he thanked when he accepted the stage and the award. You know, he thanked our Lord Jesus Christ for saving us and allowing us to do this work to spread the good news as well as be effective stewards of what we know. But the key takeaway was he thanked his children and he said without their prayers and fasting that they did willingly, I believe it was every Friday for about two years in the time in which the movie was being produced, they committed that time to the Lord and just sought his wisdom for the production and for the actual spreading of the word. So that was my takeaway from being introduced to Agenda. And then I watched the film, and I really, at the time, I was quite a bit younger. I wasn't really sure what it all meant. But as we have seen in the last few years, uh, as you hear today, it's much more relevant. So a little bit of background, though, on Curtis, which is what I'm, I'm here to do to give you. So he is, uh, background would be in high school. He was a high school math teacher, as well as a restaurant owner, and then in 2008 uh, was appointed to the Idaho State uh, Legislature. So he is a father and a statesman, and that has uniquely gifted him for what he has gone on to do in creating the Agenda documentary. Now, in America, it's a problem. Even in North Dakota, though, um, those of us who are political are aware that there's really a variety of there's a variety of information and knowledge that each of us have as to how it is in North Dakota. So the subheading to agenda is grinding America down. And I would say that grinding America down is happening even in North Dakota. Um, at the, the base level, um, we learn about, you may hear today, but goal 17 of, of part of the communist agenda is to get the schools. Now, when I say get the schools in North Dakota, many of us are aware of uh, Kirsten Baszler, who is our superintendent of public instruction. And she is definitely a big fan of Common Core um, of social justice, of critical race theory, and all of that is coming from a top-down. So every local school is fighting against that, not only locally, but also from a top-down point of view. And we would love to see someone who is more constitutional in that position. But that is indeed part of the agenda. So it is happening in North Dakota, um, at, even at that level. You know, your school might be different, but it's really not. There are no schools in North Dakota that are different. Um, so that is something we have to be aware of. And we have to be challenging so that we do, you know, I am, again, young Republicans. So when we think about the youth, I represent a wide variety of youth in our state, many backgrounds, um, homeschool, public school, Christian school. But the, the belief is that all of us as North Dakotans, and especially those of us who are Christians, we stand for something that is um, going to be more closely to how our, our country was founded on a constitutional manner. So that's a bit what Curtis is going to talk to you today about, and it may seem um, a little bit dreary, or it may seem like we don't have a hope. So what is the hope? I want to leave you with this, this uh, slightly 
thought phrase you might want to write down or it can be confusing. Basically, it's this, is that they know that we know. Not only do they know that we know, but they know that we know that they know. So now that you're all thoroughly confused, uh, what does this mean? It means that both sides are in an open war. Each of us might be at a different phase or have a different level of knowledge about this war, but the point today is to bring you up to speed and encourage you that tactical, educated citizens are able to take part in this battle. So with that, I'd like you to join me in welcoming Curtis Bowers to the stage. Good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for inviting me to be here. And it's one of the blessings of the film has been that uh, my family and I have been able to travel all over this country for the last 12 years and get to see that in every little town, every big town, every there's people that love this country, that love God and his ways, and they're, they're everywhere. And so I always want to tell you that as an encouragement. A lot of times when you're in one place most of your life, in one setting, you feel like you're all alone. You're not. <laughs> We're everywhere in this country. I'm shocked. I'll go to these little towns and 150 people come out. I'm like, where do they come from? But they, they, they come uh, because they, they care about this country and they're concerned and disturbed with the direction it's heading. Because we know, like Proverbs says, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man but the ends are over the ways of death. So we're on a course that ends in death. And um, so anyway, but it's, it's, it's great to be here and it's been a blessing. This first talk, I was told to talk about the agenda. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this. You might know some of this, but it's important to understand, Sun, Sun Tzu said 2,500 years ago, when you're in warfare, he wrote the, the Art of War, a book that's still used in all of our military academies as the main text. Um, he was just a genius of strategy, but he said, in warfare, there's the, the fundamentals are this. If you know your enemy, you'll win the battle 50% of the time. If you know yourself, you'll win the battle 50% of the time. But if you understand your enemy and you know yourself, what, what you're about, what you're fighting for, you'll win 100% of the time. And that's what's happened in our country in the schools. They're not taught about America anymore. They're just taught how every flaw it's ever had, and those are exaggerated. And so we don't know ourselves, and then we don't know the enemy at all. So, of course, we're losing every single battle every single time. And, but as I got in and studied this, um, I saw clearly that it was an agenda. I think my main focus at first was in 2008, as I just, I, I was a representative in Idaho, and even in a state like that where it was 85% Republican, we had a majority, 85% majority in the House, the Senate, and the governor, and we still couldn't get a piece of Republican legislation through there. I thought, what is going on? And, and then I started to think back over my life since the 60s forward, I thought, it's always been going the wrong direction my entire life. Didn't matter if Reagan's in there. Didn't matter who's doing what. It was always just slowly. The culture the, it was just slowly sliding to the left, just getting worse and worse and worse. And so I wanted to answer that question. I, I was like, is that is the reason it's always been going the wrong direction just an accident or is it purposeful? Is there a reason why we just always 
you know, and I came across a great, a great quote that kind of explains it. It's consistency has never been a virtue of ignorance. You understand that? Consistency. When something consistently is going one way, that's not a virtue. That's not one of the values of, of ignorance. That means it's purposeful. You know when it's always going this way, it's purposeful. When it's always, it, it, the schools never slide to the right where, hey, let's teach traditional values. <laughs> it's always, you know, we're going to teach this and this and this, and it keeps going, and there's no end to it. It keeps, I mean, the, the transgender movement that's come out in the last few years, you're like, I thought we'd seen the bottom. We're not even close to the bottom. I mean, trying to convince your little children you might be the opposite of what, how God designed you, and then you're having surgeries that permanently mutilate you for life, you'll never be able to get married. Married, You'll never be able to enjoy the, the relationship in marriage. You'll never be able to have children. You know? I mean, it's like, I, no, I've never even heard of something more satanic than that. That is just off. It's unthinkable. And they're yelling at us like, how you're crazy if you don't understand. It's like, what? So, but all those things are just symptoms of, of a problem and a movement. And I, I just want to talk a little bit about the agenda here. A few quotes first that let you know that the enemy, of course, ultimately is Satan, but the people he is using to accomplish his purposes um, for a large part have been those that are committed to the communist cause. Um, for 100 plus years. And I just want to read a few quotes from uh, Vladimir Lenin, who was the founder of the Soviet Union, because he was a genius. I've read his books. He was so evil, of course, but, but he understood how to get people to do what you want them to do, how to get control of things, how to manipulate things to your advantage. He was in incredible at that. And he said this in the early 1920s. This is 100 years ago he said this, and this is still the goal today. He said, quote, first we will take Eastern Europe, then the masses of Asia. We will encircle the last bastion of capitalism, the United States of America. We will not need to fight. It will fall as a ripe fruit into our hands. Because they knew what they were doing on the inside to corrupt us morally so we would collapse. So that's one that's important. Here's another one from him. Again, on his strategy, think back to the summer of 2020 with all the riots and the nonsense that went on. Listen to this. Again, 100 years ago, he wrote this. Divide the people into hostile groups by constantly harping on controversial matters of no importance. Always preach true democracy, but seize power as fast and as ruthlessly as possible. Encourage government extravagance, destroy its credit, produce fear with rising prices, inflation, and general discontent today, encourage civil disorder, and foster a soft and lenient attitude on the part of government towards such disorder. That's where the no, crime is not punished anymore. In this, this is 100 years ago, him laying out, here's the strategy. If we want to take over, this is what we do. One other quote he said, too, is, and this is so, this is the fundamental tactic they use to succeed in taking over all the institutions of influence so they can use them to change us as a people from within. Here it is. He said this, Vladimir Lenin, the best way to control the opposition 
is to lead it ourselves. Think about that for a minute. When you have something, someone that's opposing you, the best way to control them is to infiltrate and subvert from within. That's what's happened to the church. You want to know a few churches? They, back in the 1930s, uh, they started going into the seminaries and divinity schools. And we know that as a fact because in the 1950s, there was a congressional committee that was investigating what communists were doing in our country. And they interviewed one of the founders of the Communist Party USA who had turned to our side because he saw wait a minute, this isn't like what I thought it was. You know, he had really thought communism really was for the people, and then he turned on it, and we realized this isn't for the people, this is for total control and abuse. Anyway, he was testifying before Congress, and they said, what have you been doing? This is 1950s. What have you been doing to try to subvert us from within? And he said, the number one thing we've been doing, because we have so few numbers of, of loyalist and, and Communist Party members, We've been going into the school, uh, the um, seminaries and divinity schools to take them over so we can turn the church to use it where we can control the opposition. So we will be able to use all the energies of the church. Lenin, Stalin, Karl Marx, they were all impressed by the church and how much power it had and how much influence it had. And that's why they said we got to take that thing over because then we can turn it where we're having the church push our agenda items. And we'll just tell them, oh, that's what Jesus was for. And they're happy to use all our terminology to manipulate us into doing what they want us to do. One last quote before I get into some of their written agenda items. This, one's, this one, if you're a Christian, is, is sobering because you realize, wow, it really is a battle just like the Bible tells us. It's a spiritual battle. And it's between good and evil, between God and Satan, crystal clear. And they understood that. This quote is from a man named Antonio Gramsci. And he was an Italian communist back in the 1930s. And in the, actually in the 20s, he had gone to the Soviet Union. And um, he went and met with Lenin and said, Lenin, if you want to have world communism, you need a different strategy in countries that believe in God. And he tried to explain this strategy to him, and Lenin said, no, we will have world communism through world revolution. Kicked him out of the Soviet Union. He went back to Italy, and then Mussolini threw him in prison, where he spent the rest of his life. He was never released. But he wrote a book while he was there, which is the main principles that the left uses today. But here's just one sentence out of it where he describes the battle um, of how to take over a Judeo-Christian country. This is how you do it. He said, quote, any country grounded in Judeo-Christian values cannot be overthrown until those roots are cut. <laughs> Socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of a society. That's it. That's the game plan. Okay? Socialism is a religion. And it has to overtake Christianity by them getting control of the schools. So they start teaching socialist ideas to the young people. So, oh, that makes sense. And then the media. So they're always pushing forth. Oh, the, the people that are pushing us to move farther to the left. Those who are, they're, they're always holding those people up. And anyone that stands for what's right, they come after. I mean, me, 
in Idaho, where the people were totally, there's nothing I believe that wouldn't have been in the majority opinion. The paper just constantly attacking me, trying to tear me to shreds, um, just for basic things. Well, <clears throat> as I got into this, I, it, it's interesting how God prepares you for what you're going to do long in advance before you even know <laughs> what you're going to do. Um, but in 1992, uh, a, a gentleman who was a friend of my father's asked me to go to a meeting of the Communist Party USA out at the University of California, Berkeley. Now, I was just in my 20s in graduate school, and I said, sure, that sounds fun. And so he had been an author who had written many famous books on communism. He had studied it his whole life, and he just was curious. Now, put yourself back there in 92. In 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. Then in December of 91, the Soviet Union dissolved. You know, so everyone was saying, our side, their side, oh, communism's over, it's gone. But now this is six months later, the summer of 92, they're having a meeting. So he said, would you go? And I said, I'm curious what they're going to talk about. So I went. And at the meeting for three days, 12 hours a day, breakout sessions and lectures, they said this. They were a little disappointed what had happened in the Soviet Union. But they said, now we're just going to solely focus on taking America down from within. And here's our strategy. The first thing they talked about is the family. And, and it was so funny because I can still picture some of the men up there. They were like preachers almost. They were so passionate about what they were talking about. I remember this one guy, he goes, I've been a member of the Communist Party since the 30s. And this is 92, and he's an old man. He had this white knit sweater on. He's pounding the pulpit like a, he's sweating. And he said, the family is the most evil institution in the world. I mean, you're like sitting there listening to him. He goes, all it was designed for is to enslave women and to brainwash children. We have to do away with it. And then, but he talked about why, how we're going to do that. And that's why you wonder why the families are disintegrating, marriage is disappearing, because there's people that had an agenda to do that, and they've been diligently working at it. Well, he, they said we need to continue to get behind the feminist movement because it's been very successful at making women discontent with marriage and motherhood. Um, the bottom line was they always they want the children. So they want women to go. That's the whole feminist movement. The root of it was we want to convince women to go, yeah, go work and go do something meaningful. We'll raise the kids. This is meaningless because they knew this is the most important thing in the entire world when you're raising the next generation. Mothers, your job is the most important. Whatever the husband does for a living is nothing compared to raising the next generation. Um, that, that's the most powerful position, and they know that. Every two-bit dictator in history has known that. So they always want to be in control of the curriculum. They want to be in, in charge of the schools so they raise the next generation. Well, he said, yes, yeah, so we need to keep pushing that. We need to, he said, keep working toward the earliest education programs as possible, pre, 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 pre-K. He goes, we just have to get the kids away from the parents so they do not influence them at all with patriotism or religion. So that was their plan for the family. Then he said, the free enterprise system is so evil, so unjust, so, you know, it just makes the rich richer and the poor poor. And, you know, they went on with all their communist propaganda. But he said, we feel the only thing that can take the free enterprise system down in America so we can have socialism 
is if we get behind the environmental movement. We feel it's the only thing capable of creating enough regulation and red tape to just drive business out of America, so it will collapse economically. This is in 30 years ago, this month, July of 1992, 30 years ago. That movement was not very big at all at that time. It was people chaining themselves to trees in Oregon and stuff. It was a fringe radical movement. But look at that today. It's the most powerful thing going. It's what's driving the farmers in the Netherlands. No, you can't grow your crops anymore. You have to kill your livestock because we've got to save the planet. Do you know how many, over the next 12 months, do you know how many hundreds of millions of people are going to die in this world, starving to death from the war in Ukraine with all those fields not being able to be planted? 25% of the bread of the world comes from that region, 25%. And they're not planting. And all of, almost all of Africa, they're dependent on that. You're going to see death like there's never. It's not going to be reported because they don't want to show you that, but there, there will be 100-plus million people dying in tw within 12 months because of the policies that are being pushed. So, And then uh, for the last thing he said, we need to finally extinguish the last fiber of morality in this country, um, the, the, the Christian influence. We need to eliminate that. And he said, I, we think the only thing that will finally make morality something that's not even talked about anymore, it's just there's, you do whatever you want to do, um, is if we can get Americans to accept homosexuality. This is 30 years ago when it was still, that was not mainstream. Um, and that's what they laid out. Well, I thought that was all nutty, and I was like, oh, whatever. And I sent the notes to the guy and got on with my life. But 16 years later, I didn't know I was going to be a representative in Idaho in 2008. And I was going to write a letter about that meeting that would blow up in the press. And one of the men that was defending what I said in response to my letter, he said, what Representative Bauer says is true, but it's nothing new. It was all written in a book in 1958. And I thought... What's that? <laughs> and, of course, it was The Naked Communist by Cleon Skousen. He'd been an FBI agent, and he and many other agents had gone undercover in the 30s, 40s, and 50s into all the communist cells across America, listening. What, what are they talking about? What, what are they trying to do to us from within? And he compiled all the information from all those different agents and came up with a list of 45 current communist goals. He said, "Here's the." this is in the 50s, he said, here's the 45 main things they're talking about doing to us from within. Now, I'm going to read you a few of these to show you how clever and, and strategic they are and what they did. Now, now try to think back to 50s America. Most of you aren't old enough to do that, but have you ever seen Leave it to Beaver? <laughs> you know, okay? It was a different world back then, a completely different world than today. Everyone was into protecting the innocence of youth. Everyone. I remember a neighbor, just to show you, I remember a neighbor of ours that was an alcoholic, and he lived down the street, and I'd be walking to my friend's house, and he'd always be sitting out in a lawn chair drinking. But every time I came by for the 25 years we lived, he'd hide that behind him when he, hello, he was embarrassed. He knew, that's a child, I don't want him to see me drinking. He knew what he was doing was wrong. Everyone knew what they were doing was wrong. They still did. It wasn't like there was no sin. But people were ashamed of it like they should be. When you're doing it, especially in front of a child, look at it today. It's like we're trying to push the most vile stuff possible on the youngest age possible. Well, that's purposeful. That was part of their plan. 
But listen to a few of these goals from the 50s America. He mentioned uh, the one here, but goal 17 specifically, get control of the schools, use them as transmission belts for socialism. So it's not just get control. So you're teaching socialist ideas. So a generation rises up and says, we want socialism. Well, have you seen the surveys? 40 and under in America, 70% want socialism. 35% want communism when they're surveyed. I mean, that's how uneducated they are. They don't know what socialism is and they don't know what communism is, but they've been taught they're good. And so we want them. And they're better than this free market system that you have. Um, and soften the curriculum was a part of that same goal. Dumb them down. A dumb population is very easy to control and manipulate. When they're dummies, you can just, hey, you know, whatever, make them fearful and they'll do what you say. You don't even have to do anything. Um, of course, goal 20, infiltrate the press. <laughs> goal 21, gain control of key positions in radio, TV, and motion pictures. Those are very influential. We need to get those positioned. But then they got into things... I was shocked that they understood when we don't understand how important some of these things were, moral issues and things where I'm like, how come they get it and we don't get it? Well, because their commander-in-chief is Satan. Satan knows exactly how God intended everything to be, and he's not stopping until every single thing has been turned on its head. And that's why you go, they don't miss a trick. No, they don't. Because <laughs> he knows, <laughs> Satan knows this book probably better than most Christians do. And if God said it's supposed to be this way, he's going to make it this way. It, always the opposite because he loves death. <laughs> and so you do it the opposite of God's way, it ends in death every single time. But listen to this. This really got me. This deals with art, the, the, how important this is. Listen, eliminate all laws, I'm sorry, eliminate all good sculpture from parks and buildings, substitute shapeless, awkward, meaningless forms. Our plan is to promote ugly, repulsive, meaningless art. Now think about that. Almost every piece of art that has gone up in this country since the 70s, you know, it's twisted metal. It's like, what, it looks like an explosion. Well, what's this? What happened? Was there an accident? But they knew if you destroy people's ability to notice beauty over ugliness and over and the culture will start collapsing. When we're sitting there and there's twisted metal, we're supposed to go, wow, isn't that amazing? When it's something our five-year-old could do, but that's, that's being held up, this is art. It's not art. Oh, here's the, what art is. Art is anyone using different forms of, of mediums to mimic the creator. That means you are making something that looks like something God designed. It's not just you're trying to come up with something that's just awkward, shapeless, meaningless form. That's not art. <laughs> okay, art is when someone paints a painting that mimics the beauty that God has created or a person or they sculpt something that, oh, that's David. You know, the, um, you, know you see, oh my goodness, that's amazing. Someone could take a piece of rock. And, and, and turn it into something like that. So you're, you, you're, you're, in, you're admiring their skills to do that, but ultimately they're just mimicking the creator. Everything God made is beautiful and wonderful and whatever, and, but they don't want it to have anything to do with that. So we're just going to make something that doesn't look like anything. And we're supposed to go, man. But that was purposeful. That is them starting to collapse your culture. When you can't tell beauty from ugliness, you're starting to decline and collapse then listen to this. 
Goal 24, eliminate all laws governing obscenity by calling them censorship and a violation of free speech and free press. This is the 50s. We gotta make it an obscene culture. Why? Because an obscene culture will eventually collapse on itself. Here's a quick story of mine too. Because even, I know you all know, oh, we've come a long way. You don't know how far we've come. You don't remember because it's been gradual. It's been through incrementalism. We have changed. We've walked one step a year for 100 years, and we are so far from where we started, we don't recognize it. This is probably 1973. I was probably eight years old. And I just remembered. It just made an impression on me I've never forgotten. My mom, we lived in Tampa, Florida, and my mom was going to the store to buy some feminine things. So this story tells so many things how we've changed. Well, of course, if she's going to do that with her eight-year-old son, he's not going to walk into the women's department and see what women wear or whatever. That's not, especially undergarments or whatever. So she has me wait out on the sidewalk. It's Ma's brothers in Tampa, Florida. So I'm just out on the, right outside the door just waiting for her to come out. While I'm there, on the other side of the doorway is two guys talking, and one of them is just a rough character. This is 73 or so. He was, I just still can picture him because it scared me so much. He was covered from head to toe in tattoos, which was very rare back then, and just rough. And while he was talking to the gentleman next to him, he used the word hell, okay? And a lot of us even today would go, so here's how much we've changed. And I, I, it was a couple minutes went by, and all of a sudden he looked over and he saw me there. And this is a rough character and he came over and he put his face right in my face which I still remember that's why I remember this story because I didn't know what he was doing and he leans right down in my face and here's what he said son I'm so sorry for saying that I didn't see you standing there we've, we've come so far most Christians go well hell what's the big deal what, you know, he, he knew you don't say that kind of word in front of a child in a careless way where you're not talking about hell or whatever. And so I just, again, we just, we, we don't realize because it's a slow process and it's, and it's continually going in the wrong direction. Listen to this on goal 25. Boy, if this doesn't fit America today. Break down the cultural standards of morality by promoting pornography in books, magazines, motion pictures, radio, and TV. We live in a pornographic society today. I mean, any of the women's magazines at Walmart, you know, just right there in your kid's face, any of those in the 1950s would have been considered triple X pornography and you would have gone to prison if you tried to distribute that. Literally gone to prison. And now it's right there for our boys to read all the wonderful things they're talking about on the cover. I mean... It, 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 we've come so far, so fast. But they knew, isn't it interesting? They knew. You push pornography. Why? Because then you get immorality. Why? Marriages fall apart. And what happens? Marriages break up. We get the kids. <laughs> Someone's got to raise the kids. When they're all, everything's falling apart, we get the kids. They always want the kids. Everything's about the kids. They could care less about you. You're going to die off. They know the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. They know that is true. And that's why they do that. Go, goal 26. Again, 50s America. Present homosexuality as normal, natural, healthy. Let me tell you again how extreme that was back then. I was at my parents' house not that long ago, a couple years ago. 
and my dad had the book, The Naked Communist Theory. My parents were always involved in what was going on. And I was looking through my dad's book. I go, oh, you got the client. It's an old one from, and Cleon Skousen has signed it for him. They knew them and uh, at a meeting they'd met him and stuff. And I was looking at it, and he had the word homosexuality with a black mark. It was, it was blacked out. And I said, oh, dad, on the, why'd you black out that? And he kind of laughed. He goes, well, he goes, believe it or not, he goes, back then in the 50s, that was so offensive, that word. He goes, I didn't want your mother to see that word even. <laughs> I mean, that's how, that word was so offensive because you might conjure up an image of something. He, got, he marked it out, didn't want her to even see that, that, that used that word. And it was a hyphened word back then. Wasn't it? it was homo, da, da, sex, sexual. I mean, it was like a, not even a normal, no one would have spoken. He goes, no one would have spoken that word. If you said that word, you would have lost every, just said the word in a, you would have lost every friend you have. You know, what a vile person to even mention that is so disgusting. It would have been like that. But today we're teaching our little four-year-olds about how wonderful that is. And goal 27, pastors, infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion, the Bible, God's word, the revealed, with social religion. Discredit the Bible. They knew. Turn the churches into do-gooder clubs because do-gooder clubs are very easy to manipulate into pushing social justice and all these other radical agenda, communist agendas that can sound good if they're cloaked in religious Christian terminology. They knew what they were doing. This one's amazing to me. Goal 28, because again, this is before this happened, but it said, eliminate prayer or any phase of religious expression in the schools on the ground that it violates the principles of separation of church and state. And that's before the Supreme Court. So, oh yeah, we think it violates the separate, it's just, and their, their opinion in that was word for word what this thing had said. <laughs> you don't think there's influence in our country. Uh, <laughs> um, and it just, it goes on and on. Uh, so many different things there. But, uh, but again, I tell you that to know, again, the enemy has an agenda. And they're so committed in their quest to fulfill it and to, to do it. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to believe how they are. And it, it is, and it is direct opposition to Christianity. They know that's the number one enemy, clearly. Here's a quote from Wilhelm Reich from the Frankfurt School, which is another one of the groups I talk about in the films because they had tremendous influence. Um, but in the 1930s, listen to what he said. And this is how strategic they are. I'll read it to you and then explain what he's talking about. But this, this is powerful. If you're a Christian and you have children, uh, this is their agenda for everyone. But listen to it. He said, quote, We as communists used to debate people about the existence of God. And after a while, I came to a conclusion that this was a waste of time. I'm not going to waste my time debating, oh, there's no God. I'm not going to do that. Instead, he's going to do this. You aren't going to debate people away from the existence of God. But what we found was that if you get people involved in deviant sexual behavior, the whole idea of God just disappears automatically. Do you understand what that means? If you can make people immoral, 
They don't want there to be a God because they know what they're doing is wrong. And so he just kind of all said, yeah, then it's very easy to go, yeah, I don't think there's a God because you don't want to think there's a God because your conscience is killing you because you know what you're doing is wrong. And so if you can kind of brainwash yourself, oh, there, there's no God, you're going to do that. So, I mean, that's how evil. Okay, let's just work on getting people immoral. That will start collapsing the church too because as every young person starts being immoral and doing things, they're going to start all of a sudden not feeling comfortable in church and they're going to go, I don't want to go back to church anymore. And I mean, just pretty amazing how deviant they have been. Now I'm going to, whoops. I'm going to find one quote here that I didn't have in my, I've got with me. But um, I want to read you this one quote from a communist. This shows you how committed they are to the cause. It's kind of stag- stunning. Um, but I want to read this to you. Then I'm going to tell you an encouraging story. And then we'll be done with this first session. Because you need an encouraging story. I can tell. Sorry, let me see. As I saw it this morning, my stack of papers. But hmm. well, I don't have that one. Sorry about that. I. It was a quote, though, that when you read it, and if I find it, I'll read it to you later. It's. Um, it's so powerful. It's a, it's a college student that went down to Mexico and became a communist. And it's a letter he wrote back to his fiancée telling her why he could not get married now because he found a new love. And it was so, it's just such a powerful, I found it. Good. So glad. Here, listen to this. He, so this is the letter to his fiancée. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definitive purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind, the struggle for world communism. There is one thing in which I am dead earnest, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. I work it in the daytime and I dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, because of that, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitudes towards it. I've already gone to jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. Are you that committed to the truth? (laughs) as he is to a lie. It's, they're satanically committed to this vision of world government and the, 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 the useful idiots, as Lenin would say, 
like like that don't understand it's going to mean for him death and slaughter and totalitarian control. But that when I read that, I was I was ashamed of myself. I go, I don't think I've been that committed to the truth as he is to a lie. You have to remember that as Christians, you have the truth. So if you're playing footsies with the world and doing what everybody else is doing, when you're just here to spread the truth, you've been so deceived, but you're not accomplishing what you've been put on this earth to accomplish. You can't do that because people like him need to hear about real hope and real truth. And at some point in his life, the blinders will probably come off and he'll see everything he's worked toward wasn't what he thought it was. And so very important. Okay, Encouraging story before in closing here. In this story, I love it because it's just from my own family, but it, it, it is a great example of being faithful in the little things. Everyone wants to do something big, but the big things in life don't accomplish as much as all the little things put together. And if you're not faithful in the little things, God will never give you a big thing. It's not going to happen. But here it is. This is a story of my father, his faithfulness in the little things that God chose to bless, so it became a big thing. Back in 1961, my mom and dad lived in St. Louis, Missouri, and my dad was working full-time for McDonnell Douglas, but he was also um, full-time in graduate school, getting a PhD in electrical engineering, so he was just really busy. My mom was pregnant with my sister, and the doctor had told her, you can't get out of bed for the pregnancy. Um, she'd already lost four children in a row, and they said, you're going to lose this one too if you don't stay in bed. So she stayed in bed, but she used her time wisely. She started reading books. One of the books she happened to read was a book called Masters of Deceit by J. Edgar Hoover, who had been the founder and head of the FBI for 35 years. And he wrote this book. Okay, again, think he's the head of the FBI. Okay, he knows more about what's going on in this country than anybody because he has agents undercover throughout the country. And he wrote a book in 1958 where he said in that book, he goes, if you Americans do not wake up, you're going to be taken over from within by these masters of deceit. And he had in that book a whole chapter on the church. He goes, we see them going into the divinity schools and the seminaries. He had a whole chapter on Hollywood. We see them working their way into the key positions in the, in the movie industry. And, and he had the schools. He goes, they're taking over the teachers' colleges, so they're the ones teaching the teachers how to teach the students. They realize that's the most effective way of doing this. You don't just want to be a teacher. You want to teach teachers. So over a lifetime, if you've taught thousands of teacher, teachers, that means you've influenced millions of children. And they, they always work to have the maximum influence. Well, he wrote that. My mom read that book, and it shook her up. She's like, oh, my goodness. And she said to my dad, Jim, you got to read this book. And he's like, I'm too busy to read a book. I'm working full time, and I'm in school. She goes, you got to read this book. And so he finally read it, and he realized, wow. So here's a, a young couple in their early 20s. And I love this. I'm so thank I know God has blessed what I'm doing today because of them. It's about them. It's not about me. He, they were so faithful in the little things. They, God said, I'm going to have one of your children kind of continue on what you were doing, which is so neat. Um, but so what they would do is my mom was home all day, so she would get all the letters to the editor, all the different papers from St. Louis delivered to the house, and she'd read through the letters to the editor. And whenever one was written by someone, they got it she'd realize we need to connect with them. They understand what's going on. So she would call them up and say, here, listen, we need you to start a small group in your home. And for the first night, my husband's going to come over and give a two-hour lecture on communism. 
So they would do this one night a week, even though they were so busy. And then my dad tells me the story. He said, I came home one night. It was pouring down rain. And I was just shot from work and then school. And I was just so tired. And he goes, right when I walked in the door, my mom said, I got a meeting set up for you tonight. And he's like, no way. <laughs> Cancel it, reschedule I'm, I'm too tired. And my sweet mom was like, Jen, you need to go. You, you don't know who might be there. So he went <laughs> and drove across town in the rain. And probably because of the rain, only a couple people showed up. But he was faithful in the little things. He gave the couple people that showed up his two-hour lecture on communism. When he was done, one of the men came up to my father and said, if half of what you said is true, we are in serious trouble. And my dad said, well, that's why I've been doing this, um, even though I'm so busy. They became good friends, and he started boring everything my dad had read, the books, the articles. And in a couple months, he knew more than my dad. And he came to my dad and said, Jim, I'm going to quit my job and write a book on this. And my dad's like, well, don't get carried away. Um, he said, no, I've checked on my savings. I have enough savings to last us two years. So he quit his job. He researched for two years, and he wrote a book. And he finished the book January of 1964. He couldn't get anybody to publish it because he'd never written a book before. So he self-published it. Now, now remember 64 America. There, there's no credit cards. There's no internet. If you want a copy of his book, it's not in a bookstore in America. You have to send him cash or check in the mail to get a copy of that book. He's just selling them out of his garage. And in eight months, in 1964, out of his garage, he sold six million copies. And when Ronald Reagan was elected president of the United States, he said, I would never have been elected president of the United States if John Stormer in 1964 had not written the book, None Dare Call It Treason, the book from the man that came to my dad. It started the entire conservative movement in America. And so I want to encourage you, maybe you're not the person to write the book. You might be the person to influence the person that writes the book. We just have to be faithful with what God has given us to do. He knows what's going on. And so we just, what do you want me to do? And we obey and then let him part the Red Sea. But if he tells you to hold up your staff, you better hold up your staff. Because he always uses us to accomplish his, his purposes. It's his grand design of how kind he is. He could have done it all himself to go just go play golf. I'll, I'll take care of this. He said, no, I'm going to use you. You're going to be my hands and my feet and my here on this earth to do what I want to have done. And so it's a great blessing that he does that. But anyway... Appreciate you very much, and that's the first talk. <laughs> so, sure. Thank you very much.